I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. We talk unconditional offers, research cultures, KEF, and more. It's all coming up. But I must say, I, I found, I spent a long time, as you know, working in a, 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 an office of a member of parliament. And um, you've got a big post bag, as all members of parliament do. And, and there was a surprising amount of, of, of sort of um, uh, casual racism sometimes expressed in people's frustrations uh, uh, in, in that sort of private post bag. And it, it made me a higher level of sort of latent racism in our society than we like to... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Mark Leach, recording from Wonky HQ in London. And following last week's Baltic special with Jim and Wonky SUs, check it out if you haven't already, here to help us ease into the warring 20s. We have two amazing guests. In Brockenhurst, we have Nick Hillman, Director of the Higher Education Policy Institute. That's happy to you and me. Nick, your highlight of the week. Well, funnily enough, my highlight of the week is me being, for me personally, being here in Brockenhurst because I've been speaking to the governors of the University of Southampton, which is a university I'm ashamed to admit I've never visited before or done an event for. So um, I've been hearing about their priorities. And in Chepstow, we have Jenny Shaw, Director of Student Experience for Unite Students. Jenny, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, my highlight of the week is, is kind of something that hasn't happened yet, but we've spent a lot of this week preparing to, to launch our um, research for, for our Insight report for this year. So uh, we're preparing for focus groups and interviews and just, just really excited about what we're going to find out. So we start the show returning to that hardy perennial unconditional offers. Mike Ratcliffe, friend of the show and academic registrar, of course, at Nottingham Trent University, had a piece on the site earlier this week setting out the impact of conditional unconditional offer making on student cohorts at his university. And it was also written up in The Times, which I think it's fair to say has been fairly tough on the sector about this issue in uh, the last few months. Nick, can you talk us through this one? Yes, it's a it's a fascinating thing that Nottingham Trent have done. I mean, they're, they're on a they're clearly on a on a journey here because um, you know we had Edward uh, Peck, their vice chancellor, as part of the Auger review. We then had their announcement a few weeks ago, cracking down on the increase in first class degrees at Nottingham Trent, and they're now uh, explaining why they offer so many unconditional offers uh, and defending themselves against. This sort of attack that um, some of the media and the government, particularly Damien Hines when he was Secretary of State for Education, uh, ha- have been making on unconditional offers. So Nottingham Trent say uh, that they're defending their use and they're saying that there isn't clear evidence that people slip behind uh, in their A-levels in their sick form work after being given one of these offers. And they don't believe that uh, dropout rates are higher for people who get in at least to their university with with a, with a conditional, unconditional offer. So, so it's quite a bold defense using data. I'd like to see more granular information. I'd like to see the number for other universities too. Um, but, it, you know, it's important because teachers hate unconditional offers uh, and we do need a better evidence base when we're discussing them. 
do you think other universities should publish the data in the, in the same way? Yes, um, I, I do. I think in our sector, we should never be scared of data, even when it tells us things we don't want to hear. You know, in their day-to-day jobs, academics and researchers are always dealing with difficult data and contextualizing it and working hard to understand it. And I think we should be just as open to the use of data about our own sector and what we do do in the sector. So it'd be great if this was the start of a trend. And you know what, even if it isn't the start of a voluntary trend, I suspect the government will continue putting their thumbscrews on universities and may end up make them doing this if, if we don't do it voluntarily. I wonder if, if the tide has the tide already turned against, particularly conditional unconditional. That seems to me to be the thing that Damien Hines particularly gets gets worked up about, and, and the OFS has been pretty strong in its in its language. Do you, do you think the political tide? Do either of you think the political tides turned against the sector on on this one? Is the is the NTU defence too late almost? Yes, it could be. I mean, I have some sympathy actually for for what you're saying and what Damien Hines and others have said because you know my first job after leaving university was I was a secondary school teacher. I taught a pre-university course. And so I'm very aware of the fact of how young a lot of school leavers are when they're applying to university. They're, they're not legally adults. They're 17 very often. And funnily enough, the work that we are happy have done with Jenny and her colleagues at Unite Students ha- ha- has, has emphasized that. We've done research with Unite Students looking at what applicants think higher education is like. And higher education is often very different to what they think it's like. So I do worry about putting a lot of pressure on 17-year-olds when they're filling in their UCAS forms and then making decisions afterwards, um, uh, you know, w- without due care and attention. So, so, so you know, we, we mustn't – NTU have done a good thing here, but the conversation will continue. It doesn't end the debate. Yeah, there's, there's an angle on this, actually, which I've, I've not seen spoken about or, or researched in any way, which is, um, I, I think, absolutely accepting the points you make, Nick, uh, about the pressure it puts on young people. But there is, a, there is already a pressure on young people applying to university actually to, to get the grades and to get into their first choice of university. And I, I don't know about you, but 30 years on, I can still remember that. Um, and, and actually, is there something positive for students? I don't know the answer to this, but about having that certainty about where they're going to go and just removing that pressure so that presumably they can then go on and do do their best and know where they're going. I mean, it, it gives them a, a chance to, to see themselves in, in that environment, to, to be clear about where they're going, to develop a sense of bonding with that university, develop a sense of belonging, perhaps, which we know is really important for a whole lot of things such as retention. Um, so I, I would like to see a little bit of research into that angle because it's, it's not something that's been explored, I think. I accept that, actually. And I think, for example, if you're a student with particular needs, maybe a disability, for example, having a slow and gradual and long conversation with your future university about your needs and getting everything in place beforehand uh, can be a helpful thing to do. And obviously, if you've already accepted a place early, that can be easier. Um, But on the other side of the coin, we have huge numbers of people calling for post-qualification applications who want the whole university application process to take place later in the process. Um, So there are these sort of conflicting, uh, conflicting pressures, but I guess it reminds us that every individual applicant is a different sort of person with different requirements. It also seems to me a symptom of, of the market. I mean, once student number controls are opened up, universities started trying all sorts of different things uh, as, as the competition heated up. So on the one hand, um, it's it looks like a rational response. And I think, uh, although there could well be benefits, I think, as Jenny as Jenny rightly points out, I think the problem for universities is, is that it's never going to look altruistic because 
um, ultimately they're fighting for um, student numbers. But that is the system that the government has handed to the sector. So um, it seems like a bit of a catch-22. I mean, it is the system that uh, we live in. And of course, one of the points Mike Ratcliffe makes in his wonky article is that actually Nottingham Trent is a very popular university. So it doesn't, that they would fill their places whether they did this or not, but not everywhere would. Um, and I think an interesting thing is when the demographics change, when the number of 18 year olds starts increasing again, as it does in a couple of years time, uh, whether they will con- unconditional, uh, unconditional offers of every type will remain as common as they are now, or whether they'll start um, disappearing again for reasons, you know, partly because of the government pressure, but partly because the numbers, the, the flow of people from school to university uh, uh, really increases. And we could see things like number caps come back on um, and other things in, in that in that new landscape when there are far more 18-year-olds than there are university places, essentially? I, I think so. Uh, I, I think so. And Australia removed student number caps before we did and are now uh, reimposing them. And we could go through the same cycle. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Mike Radcliffe. I'm the academic registrar at Nottingham Trent University. And this week we've written about unconditional offers and our findings from looking at our data about the performance of students. So we've been looking at two key contentious areas. We've been looking at whether or not those students do less well in their grades before they come, i.e. do they coast because of the effect of getting an unconditional offer, and then do they do less well when they come to university, i.e. because they've been coasting, they're not so well prepared to take their uh, studies forward. And we found a tiny, tiny little element which we might be able to ascribe to uh, the difference in terms of predicted grades. Predicted grades are obviously complex um, and quite hard to work through, but we think that only amounts to potentially 1.2% of the difference. But we find no difference when it comes to students actually being here and either attaining or progressing at university. We think this is an important thing to look at in terms of unconditional offers and the policy situation that we find ourselves in. So what are we going to do? How much should we analyse analyze our data and make sure that we understand what we're doing with a piece of practice that some politicians, particularly politicians, find controversial? This week, the Wellcome Trust released a report on a research culture in the UK. Based on a survey of 4,000 researchers around the country, they find that nearly two-thirds of respondents had witnessed bullying and harassment, with only a third feeling able to report such incidents. Jenny, can you lead us through this research? Yes, I can. It's, uh, the report's not an easy one to read, actually, because it, it paints this picture of researchers as actually highly dedicated professionals who are very passionate uh, about what they do, but working with a, in a culture that many of them believe is, is becoming unsustainable. There's certainly plenty of evidence that it's causing harm to many of them as well. And, and actually, it's, it's that very culture um, that threatens the thing that they value the most, which is their own research. So um, I think, understandably, it's been that, that human um, cost that has been reported on the most. But uh, um, there's, there's plenty in there as well about, you know, is, is this the, the way to continue? Is this actually going to harm um, the, the research culture of UK universities over time? Because there's, there's evidence there as well of poor research practice, of unethical practice actually being driven by this culture. And, and that, do, do you mean the kind of the pressure that comes on uh, researchers and that leading to the leading to the, this these kind of problems. Yes, it's partly that. So there, there's quite a lot in there as well. Um, further down the report uh, about um, just the way in which the uh, the funding seems to set up power imbalances, and this can be mitigated by by good management and leadership, but but is not always done so. Um, so you'll get researchers who are um, good producers. Um, they get published in high impact journals, and and they get 
the grants and so they, they can become untouchable um, and and so there's there's uh, an idea that they can get away with poorer practice they can get away with um, even actual misconduct but but can't be challenged or there's a culture in which they can't be challenged because they're the stars uh, and then of course those researchers who are not um, being published or, or getting the grants as much then become kind of lower status within within the institution so there's quite a lot there about how this creates a, a toxic culture if if not well managed it seems to me choosing a choosing an academic research career is a tremendously hard path i mean those those the, uh, those ju- the junior rungs and kind of working your way up is so difficult and and so precarious and then you look at this report and it and it, sh- it basically says um, that the culture is completely broken on this on this human level as well, and you just wonder why on earth anyone would get into it in the first place. It's true, and at the very least, it's it's just poor talent management. So if you've got a workforce where um, I'm, I'm trying to find the statistics here, uh, the very few um, at the the junior level and even the the mid career level feel that it's a, a you know a long term viable profession to be in there's there's high levels of insecurity so um you put that together with the um the level of stress i think it was 70 percent feel stressed by their work on a daily basis it's just poor talent management and it's hard to see how that could be sustainable over the long run Uh, yeah i I agree i think it's a really important report this with it's been such a spotlight shone on the very important issue of things like undergraduate mental health um which is another very important issue but the mental health of researchers is equally important and we haven't talked about it very much and i think we're so lucky to have the welcome trust because they have two things they have good sense on this issue and a lot of money they are themselves a funder so they can in themselves as they say in the report actually lead from the front and encourage a change a change of behavior which i think is is fantastic and as i read the report i i just kept on thinking we like to think in higher education that our values and our practices are better than in other sectors but sometimes we're just a you know a microcosm of wider society and have exactly the same challenges and problems but what i like most about the report was it has a really constructive set of proposals at the end for things to do better um, i mean there's lots of them but you know things like more diversity on funding panels um, giving advice to the leaders of teams on how to manage a diverse team having anonymous appraisals uh, allowing there to be impartial spaces where people can raise concerns and that's the sort of practical suggestions that we need to hear and then implement I completely agree with that. I thought the recommendations were great. And it was it was very clear reading the report how a lot of this does stem from um, either stems from or can be influenced by management practice. And, and although researchers seem to be quite positive about their immediate management, you drill into the data a little bit more. And it's clear that those managers aren't doing just the basic things that make for good leaders. I mean, good leadership is not being charismatic is it it's being diligent about doing the the right things having performance conversations giving feedback asking for feedback and and actually that seems to be something that can be that can be fixed whereas some of these wider issues about the way in which research is funded i think and and it actually says in the report can lead to a sense of hopelessness about well this this problem can't be fixed because it's just beyond me and it's beyond everyone so i I thought it it ended on a very positive note certainly it it is always great when a policy report has some tangible and, and kind of meaty recommendations that are, that are also quite achievable um, and I think Nick's totally right that you know just the kind of quality of um, of, of work here from Welcome is is really outstanding and also um, welcome. Um, and but, I think, um, Mark I'll just make a more general point mm. on that which is uh, you a wonky mate um, face the same challenge we do I'm sometimes asked that why 
don't we are happy publish more papers written by academics you know we're a higher education body we're involved in the higher education policy debate and and one of the thing, frustrations i have in my role is is we sometimes get some fantastic writing from academics which are a brilliant ripping apart of all, of a problem but you know as a policy body we need to know a positive alternative solution and sometimes in our own sector, that is lacking. And that, and as you say, the Wellcome Trust are clearly very conscious of that because they have a very effective list of recommendations at the back. And I think we should always, when we criticise government policy or criticise things going on in the sector, have a better alternative in our back pocket. So that when someone else, someone says, what would you do instead? We can say, well, this is what we would do instead. And now Wonky's editor, our very own Debbie McVitie, asks who exactly is the new Shadow Universities and Science Minister? We heard last week that Emma Hardy, MP for Kingston-upon-Hull West and Hessel, has been appointed as Labour's Shadow Minister for Further and Higher Education, replacing Gordon Marsden, MP, who lost his Blackpool South seat in the 2019 general election. We don't know whether Hardy will retain the role for more than a few months. You'd expect a new Labour leader to appoint a new Shadow team. But even before the new Labour leader is announced in April, we're expecting a few big policy events in higher education the response of the government to the AHRC report on racial harassment, the independent review of the teaching excellence framework, and not least the budget, which we're expecting at least some progress on the government's response to last year's Augur review, potentially some new money for research as well. And of course, there's Brexit. There's always Brexit. Hardy has a degree in politics from the University of Liverpool and a PGCE from the University of Leeds. Before entering Parliament in 2017, she worked as a primary school teacher and as an organiser for the National Union of Teachers. Since her election, Hardy's been a member of the House of Commons Education Committee, where she's campaigned on special education needs and disabilities. She's also a parliamentary private secretary to Labour leader candidate Keir Starmer and a champion of gender equality. Her website promises that she'll use the rule to campaign for increased funding for further and higher education, with a special focus on the provision of high-quality vocational training and apprenticeships. She said recently in a Twitter video that world-class education does not come cheap, and it does not come from treating the staff who work in education badly. Hardy voted for an opposition amendment to the 2017 Queen's speech that proposed the scrapping of tuition fees and the reinstatement of the maintenance grant and nursing bursaries in line with Labour's policy in the National Education Service. She's also subsequently stated her support for free university tuition and for a post-qualification admission system. And she said she doesn't agree with the free market in higher education. So, this morning, Research England published the details of the first version of a knowledge exchange framework, the new metric-based framework will allow us to compare universities across seven knowledge exchange perspectives and will support universities to further develop their knowledge exchange strategies. Nick, how's it looking so far? Well, the KEF's a very interesting policy lever. Uh, uh, as you said, it's, it's designed to raise the efficiency and effectiveness of public knowledge for f- public funding for knowledge exchange, which I'm not sure means anything to your regular person on the street. But, but in practical terms, what that means is, is universities will be measured on things like uh, their research partnerships, how much they work with business, how much they work with th- the third sector, what their community engagement is like. Um, and the idea dates back uh, to Theresa May's premiership. Um, but I think it could be, um, a, you know, really powerful intervention because it could be one of the things which reconnects universities in a deeper way to wider society. Um, 
today uh, we're recording this on on Thursday. There's been this uh, uh, new report from Research England, which explains exactly what metrics are going to be used, exactly what the timeline uh, for the KEF is, exactly how the results will be produced in spider diagrams. Um, but I, I think it's interesting at a sort of slightly higher level. I mean, um, one of the people who's done work on the CAF uh, uh, in the last few months is, is Richard Jones at Sheffield, who is Dominic Cummings's favourite academic, seemingly. Um, and R- R- Richard Jones is very interested in things like uh, he thinks our research base is too small, even though it's high quality. He thinks it's too small. He thinks we're, like many people do, bad at translational research compared with other countries, don't fund enough industrial R&D, too geographically concentrated, um, you know, particularly in the southeast. So, so if the CAF does what policy makes want, it will lead to much more sophisticated conversations about um, all those things. Uh, I've got to say, it's very metric heavy. And I'm thinking of the welcome report we were just talking about that says a lot of the pressure researchers feel is because they're judged on metrics. Um, but there is a narrative element to it as well. So universities will be able to to write narratives. There's actually three narrative elements to say what their institutional context is, what their public and community engagement is like, what their um, uh, what they do for local growth uh, and regeneration. Um, I think the KEF will drive really significant change if and when money is attached to it. And at, in the first iteration of the KEF in the first year, there won't actually be any money attached to it. But we, of course, have the higher education innovation funding uh, stream of money, which most people think could very easily be applied to the KEF and the Research England are quite keen for that to happen in future. Um, and also, who knows, it, uh, when we leave uh, the European Union, you know, who knows if we'll continue to be in all those European research uh, uh, um, funding streams. And if we're not, and the UK government chooses to replace, uh, as it said it would, would do, um, that lost money, maybe some of that money would be linked to the CAF as well. So, um, you know, the CAF's arriving at a moment when there's a huge interest in regional policy and regeneration. Um, so, you know, it, it's a really important document today from Research England, but it's still a moving picture. And I think the CAF's going to go on becoming more important. I completely agree. I, I, I was reading this and I, I'm thinking, actually, it, KEF hasn't been hugely on people's radar the last couple of years. And I wonder if this government, strangely, and Dominic Cummings and, and that regional agenda has kind of given KEF its, is going to give KEF its moment. It's going to, it's going to have kind of arrived as a, as a policy that actually makes sense for this, um, for the current policy climate, which, as we know, is, is driving very heavily at, um, these regional questions um, and and fascinating as you point out to draw those links uh, between the people working on this like Richard Jones um, and Dominic Cummings now I, I don't believe Richard Jones sees himself as kind of you know Dominic Cummings is kind of uh, kind of close confidant or anything like that but it's clear that um, uh, a lot of his thinking has been very very influential um, and I it, it, you know it seems very prescient that the KEF is, is emerging um this year and as you say next year attached to funding um, because the government's going to need kind of oven ready solutions for rebalancing the economy post Brexit um, and I can just imagine how um, uh, how something like this will, will play a more important political role than I think was probably imagined by its, uh, its original architects. Yeah and the neat thing about it I think is um, there's sometimes seen as being a tension between distributing uh, resources according to excellence criteria on the one hand 
and distributing resources on regional criteria on the other hand. And one of the neat things about the TEF is it, it, it sort of joins up those two things. We're measuring what's really going on and we're thinking of it regionally as well. So, so this could be, as you say, it could be um, in a way, thank God it exists, because um, imagine we were having the same debate about regional policy without the sort of metrics that are in the CAF. You know, we would be, we would be you know, trying to find our way in the dark, and the CAF should hopefully um, light a path to um, a, a more evidence-based policy in this whole, whole space. But maybe that's naive, but it's certainly better that it exists than it doesn't exist, I think, even though... And Jenny may have views on this. I do still have this slight concern at the back of my mind, having just read the, read the welcome report, saying how much pressure researchers feel under by the constant measuring of everything they do. Yeah, I, I have um, probably a bit of a historic perspective on this, actually, because this is the area of work where I started my career in universities in the 90s. And um, so it's, it's, it's maybe less of a new activity than we think but certainly at that time it was a very marginal activity it was it didn't have a name um it eventually acquired the name uh, i think it was higher education reach out in business and the community and then it's it's evolved um over the last few years now it's the, the kef um i was very involved with it obviously uh, at that time um then have had no involvement whatsoever and, and until now so uh, quite interesting to come and revisit it um i think on the one hand it's it's great actually that this area of work is being recognized to the degree it is now because it tended to be uh, something that um, academics would do and non-academic staff as well um, on top of their uh, research and teaching loads almost as a not quite a hobby but um, it, you know something that was was not rewarded and valued and, and recognized now certainly in the institution that I was in at the time we had quite a long conversation about how can we at least internally recognize this as a, a valid area of work um, so perhaps uh, in that perspective, it, it, giving that recognition and, and potentially in the future giving that funding to it can, can actually help uh, in terms of workloads. Um, one of my biggest reflections actually on, on looking at the metrics was, uh, well, it, it's very much based on what universities get um, from the process and not what they give. And I know DK made a, a related point in his blog, which is, you know, this is about volumes. It's not about excellence or, or necessarily quality. Um, and I think that there can be some interesting angles to this in terms of uh, the, the regional aspect. So as, as you mentioned, Nick, so um, when I was doing this, um, we had loads and loads of European funding. We had the European Social Fund. We had the Regional Development Fund. So actually, if you lived in an area where the businesses were really struggling and it, the, the local people were really struggling, you could get the funding in to do the things you wanted to do and that the local community needed you to do. Um, I'm not sure that that's quite the same now. Um, and I don't know how the funding will be dispersed in a way that will maybe help fill some of those gaps or, or whether it's going to be a very kind of inward looking funding stream based on what universities are, are doing at the moment. And that blog Jenny mentioned uh, by our associate editor David Kernahan, where, where he attempts to run KEF year zero based on the available metrics um, for the hobbyists, I think, but also for the uh, professional research officers. Um, I think some interesting results there to look at on the site this morning and in the show notes. Now it's time for Yes, But How Does It Extrapolate? Yes, you heard that right. This is indeed a new segment from the people, <coughs> DK, who brought you Yes, But Does It Correlate? It celebrates the slow news day at the Times over Christmas, where a decision was made to extrapolate the rise in first-class degrees from a massive four data points to come up with an exciting headline. And oh, how we laughed. In this game, 
you're going to guess the headline based on a probably but not entirely defensible but always more than four data points trend from HE Data. So, I'm looking for the year when the trend will cross the stated threshold. This week, yes, but how does it extrapolate looks at entry rates. Based on an extrapolation from data since 2006, in what year will the HE entry rate for English domiciled 18-year-olds pass 100%? I would, I would say a good half a century. I, I, I would say somewhere between, uh, probably more than that, probably 75 years. You'll have to wait until 2060 for universal HE for English 18-year-olds, but Tony Blair's 50% target will whiz by in 2033. But on the other tab of our visualization, you'd have to wait until 2092 for the application rate for English 18-year-olds to reach 100%. So there's clearly more unconditional offers to come. This week's data is based on UCAS end-of-cycle reporting. And where the data doesn't exist, I've extrapolated it. Now, the University of Sheffield has announced that it will recruit students to act as race equality champions. Their role will be to lead training sessions on campus and university accommodation to help other students recognise and combat racist attitudes. It sounds like a great scheme, but it was classic culture wars catnip for the right-wing press this week, who took the opportunity to dust down its scare quotes and wind up the dinner party set with talk of microaggressions and bans on sombreros. Jenny, what's your take on this? Uh, My take on this is fairly straightforward. To me, the headline here is, University tackles ignorance, improves critical thinking and makes its students more employable, Um, which seemed like I think when you go beyond the headlines and look into what they're actually doing, it all seems quite reasonable. I mean, first of all, it responds to a specific issue. So there was a report last year from the Equality and Human Rights Commission about racism on campus, which found that racial harassment was a common experience for students. So um, there's something there about, yeah, they're going in there, they're looking at the, the kind of culture that creates this and they're trying to tackle it at its source. Heaven um, forbid. I know. <laughs> I do I do as well. I, I, I got quite excited about this as well from uh, an employer perspective because, you know, I, I work for a FTSE 250 company. I hire people. I would really want to be hiring people who, first of all, know how to behave around people who are different from them, but secondly, have actually engaged in critical thinking about their deeply held beliefs and and have learned and grown as a result because they're the people I want in my team. So actually, from an employer perspective, I I would welcome this kind of thing, um, which is something that, that seems to have been missed in the way it's been reported as well. Yeah, I I um I always uh, think I need to be a bit careful talking on these issues, being a sort of white middle aged man who, who who therefore hasn't been on the receiving end of of the sort of behaviours that 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 this is trying to stop. But I must say, I I found I spent a long time, as you know, working in a, a, a an office of a member of parliament, and um, you got a big post bag as all members of parliament do, and and there was a surprising amount of 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 sort of. Um, uh, casual racism sometimes expressed in people's frustrations uh, uh, in in that sort of private post bag, and it, it made me. I've always. I sometimes think about that. I think we, there is a higher level of sort of latent racism in our society than we like to 
um, think there is. Um, so I think this is an interesting initiative. Um, we published a report last year on the BME attainment gap, which had a, some really interesting chapters in, including one by um, uh, someone from LSBU, London South Bank, which talked about the change in language everybody needs to think about on uh, campus to make everybody feel truly welcome and included. Um, and Cohen Lambert, of course, Vice-Chancellor of Sheffield, who's, who's led from the front on this issue, is a Vice-Chancellor who, it seems to me, really does care about the students. I mean, you look, for example, at what he did on mental health when he was at York. Um, um, but I mean, we shouldn't all agree on everything. So I would just say one thing. I hope this is a trial and not a fully-fledged everybody convinced it's going to have a massive impact from day one because um, it is a bit of a hostage to fortune in media terms, as you suggested, Mark. I mean, I think Spike's headline was turning students into a woke Stasi. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we can live with headlines like that if we can prove that the initiatives we're doing in the sector are having a real impact on the ground. But, but you know, so if in a year or two this, this um, project has proven success, and I don't know how, quite how you measure it, um, but if it has proven success, then, then we can go out there and be on the front foot and say this is what every university should be doing. But maybe other universities will be, have different initiatives, will be even more effective. So, so, so I wouldn't criticise it, but I hope it's a, a, a learning process and a trial rather than something that everybody's got to immediately fall in line with, because there may be better ways to solve the, the, the very real problem. I think that's right. And I would also hope that universities who are trying things aren't put off by the negative reaction that's inevitably going to follow from the, the, the press, particularly the right-wing press, because those stories are going to be written anyway, whether or not a university announces anything. You know, these, these are stories that get rehashed over and over again on the, on the kind of thinnest of hooks pretty much on a daily basis. So, um, you know, I, I think kind of hats off to Sheffield for um, putting its head above the parapet on this issue. I, I think the, you know, back to your point, Nick, that, that, universities need to be doing a range of things I think that they are aren't they and, and the um, that great report that you published last year um, with the, the different chapters on on tackling racism and uh, race issues in higher education um, started to bring some of those to the fore but I, I, I'm pretty sure that every university is doing something it's just maybe that they don't all attract the same kind of headlines um, and it, it is about learning and it is about finding out what works because you know we, we are living in a society that's become quite divided on these issues and that's that's the the underlying worrying thing is is actually how um initiatives like this are are received and how it's um used to to create this idea of a, a hugely divided society and you know some of the rhetoric about it is is actually quite frightening um and that's that's the context in which this is happening and, and that's developing actually year on year so and, yeah. and i think one one um good thing that has happened uh, uh and will really help universities that have recognized the problem and want to make progress is you know there's a lot of guidance out there now that can really help you know there's the work that amity doku from the nus and baroness amos from soas did for universities uk um there's you know there's there's academic books like um uh, white privilege by calvin bhopal there's the chapter of a collection of essays we did uh, last year there's a race equality charter mark process that institutions can go through a little bit like what they've done with Athene Swan um, so you know it, it, part of the reason I welcome uh, Sheffield um, in, intervening in this space is that um, 
you know, we're having much healthier conversations about it now than we did a few years ago. It's easier to know what to do than it was a few years ago, even though we're still on a journey. Um, and hopefully it will make a really big impact on the ground because uh, things like the black attainment gap uh, are very real problems. So that's about it for this week. Remember, to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today, you'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favorite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Nick, Jenny, DK and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.